Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. A very good afternoon to you all. Um, welcome to this particular element in the LSE Festival 2023. Uh, my name is Tony Travers. I'm professor in the School of Public Policy in the Department of Government here at the LSE. Uh, and I should say welcome to everybody in the room and welcome to everybody online. So everybody looking for a camera out there. Our session has this slightly glum title, How Did Britain Come to This? And we'll hear more from our two speakers about the nature of this question. But I just want to say a couple of words before I introduce them. I think it is an, it's an apposite title. There's a sense that we've come to a point in British politics after, as I've said elsewhere, is four once-in-a-lifetime events within about 15 years to quit you know, the 2008-09 banking crisis, Brexit, the pandemic, and more recently, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Now, these are all once-in-a-lifetime events. I would argue the return of war in Europe, effectively, something many of us thought would never happen. And I think against that backdrop, and the government has now been in power one way or another for over 13 years and is clearly struggling politically with an opposition which is untried. I think there is a big question, a big debate to be had about, in no particular order, is it as bad as all this? Is it really this bad? And if there are problems with government, with trust in government, what are they? And what can we as citizens and those who try to think about it do about it? I think that's what we're going to hear about this afternoon. And we're going to hear about it from two authors, uh, Ross Taylor, who is contributing editor at Podmasters, but has worked here as a colleague at the LSE, editing several excellent blogs and had a career in the media, The Guardian and elsewhere before that. Ross is writing a book which is called... The Future of Trust. The Future of Trust. A very important subject. We know that in the UK, as in many uh, liberal democracies, trust in government has fallen away quite substantially. And also speaking on the title of a book he's written called How Did Britain Come to This, which is the title of our talk, is Professor Gwyn Bevan, who is Emeritus Professor of Policy Analysis and has been a distinguished colleague of mine here for many years. So both Ross and Gwyn actually been colleagues at the LSE. So I'll say little more other than just framing the debate. What we're going to do is to hear from each of our distinguished speakers and then with plenty of time for your points, questions, debate between now and half past three, so we've got another 56 minutes. Well thank you very much Tony. I'm very grateful to Ros being a member of this panel, having worked through uh, Covid and Brexit and blogs, key issues as you say two of our lifetime once in a lifetime events. I've written this book because I've been trying to make sense of what's happened to Britain over my lifetime. And as Tony said, where we are now just doesn't feel good. You know, the papers today have got problems over a water company paying up dividends and restricting water supply. We read every day about sewage in our rivers and trees. A public inquiry into COVID is just beginning. And Baroness Hallett looks to be a formidable chair of that inquiry. I'm sure it'll reveal a lot of things that went wrong in 2020, and Ros will know a lot about that, having followed it. We've got uh, problems with the privatised railway. The mayors in the cities in the north 
are in despair about its unreliability, what that inflicts on people in the north and their businesses. We have housing that is unaffordable in the desirable parts of Britain. And this alarming report today about increases in mortgage rates, making that even more unaffordable. Now, what my book argues are that all these things going wrong are not accidents. They're products of our systems of governance. And a phrase that haunts me is every system's perfectly designed to get the results it gets. So our systems of governance that we've got are designed to produce all these different aspects of misery that we live through today. The question is, why? Why have we had that? And to understand that, you have to recognize that in the past century, there have been two what I describe as major political settlements that laid the foundations of our systems of governance. The first one was established just before I was born, which is the Atlee Settlement after the Second World War. And that was all about getting to grips were the terrible problems that Britain suffered in the 1920s and 1930s. The appallingly high rates of unemployment, uh, the means test inflicting poverty on those who were unemployed, um, you know, inadequate secondary education, no health service, uh, grinding poverty for those who are unemployed. And the Atlee government, in particularly difficult economic circumstances, having to demobilize those who've been in the army, transformed the way we run the country. They created the National Health Service. They decided that they needed to nationalize the commanding parts of the economy. And the coal industry that's so vital to us had been failing. The railways had been failing under private enterprise. And, and they fixed things. And Peter Hennessy's talked about it as having made Britain a much kinder, better place to live in, in a way no government has matched since. And so that was a phenomenal achievement, but it was designed for the problems of the 1920s and 1930s. And by the 1970s, uh, it was falling apart. The attempt to manage the economy was failing, we were experiencing stagflation. Council housing has been described as slums in the sky. There were problems with running our schools. There's a notorious case in William Tyndale School, but the inquiry, one of its former and portrait pupils said, you don't get learned nothing at this school. Um, the NHS was said to be in gridlock. And so Margaret Thatcher's Conservative government, elected in 1979, established a new settlement to change all that. And it's what's described as neoliberalism. Neoliberalism puts markets at the core of things, whereas under the Atlee settlement, it was the government was going to be king. For Margaret Thatcher, markets were going to be king. So that's privatization government outsourcing, markets for our schools and, and hospitals and uh, social care and so on. And that again, it was developed in the 1980s, seems to be working well in the 1990s. Now, in 2020, the system designed for the 1970s aren't working well at all. And I would argue we need a new political settlement. And that's when that works about. Okay, very, very good. Well, ask you, I'll ask you a couple of questions after we've heard from Ros, because I'd like to open that up out about particularly where you think you're heading by way of a solution. I'll come on to that in a moment. But Ross, over to you. Thanks, Tony. 
Um, yes, while I was at the ISC, uh, started in 2015, I uh, edited a couple of blogs, which um, Tony was my boss at the time. And the first one was about Brexit, and the second one was about COVID. And uh, yeah, we started the uh, Brexit one in 2015, not really expecting that it would um, actually last very long. And of course, it turned out to run for <laughs> several years. But these are two events which might almost have been designed to test the citizens' trust in the state. And we see them both playing out in very different and very fascinating and often very alarming ways. With Brexit, of course, we were being asked to put our trust in the people who said that we would be better off out of the European Union. And that was a giant leap of faith that people were being asked to make. I was asked earlier uh, for uh, NSE social media, why is change so difficult? Uh, why is it so hard? It's hard because sticking with the status quo is usually easier. And yet, 52% of the population in this instance decided that it was better to make this vast change. And one can argue forever about how much they, re how greater, whether they realized it would be as great a change as it would. There was infamously somebody the following day who voted for Brexit who said, well, we can just leave now, can't we? It's done. We're out. So, yeah. Let's say some of the, the commentary around it was uninformed. But nonetheless, the people who were arguing for Brexit, most infamously, of course, our ex-Prime Minister Boris Johnson, were able to persuade the, the majority of Britons who voted that it was the right thing to do, to take this leap of faith. And for me, one of the most interesting aspects of the Brexit uh, the discussion around it was what, how they were able to do that and how they were able to achieve that just about majority. And then, of course, we had COVID. This was a time when people, people were being asked to put their faith in the state and the state's ability to protect them in a way that was simply unprecedented in British life. You know, we've had pandemics before, obviously, most you know, recently, the 1918-1920 flu pandemic, but there was no concept really of a lockdown then. There was no concept of the idea that the state could step in and protect you, whether by imposing a lockdown or by paying out furlough or by doing loads of the other things that happened. And we were asked to put our faith in the government to, to if we did, kept our side of the bargain and obeyed the law and the rules, then we would be protected and we would emerge from this a better country. And there was a lot of talk at the time, you may remember, about building back better. I'm not entirely sure that that has been fulfilled. Nonetheless, it was a time almost of optimism, just like as we were talking about the Second World War. It was a similar dynamic going on there, not even before the end of the Second World War. There was a strong feeling in Britain that we could do better, led by but the, and the beverage report that we could do better, that we could produce a better state that protected people, that met their, their most important needs, that, that could function better. And of course, the example of the war and the example of the effort that was put into fighting it was given as an example of what a country could do when it pulled together. And similarly, with COVID, we were told that this was remarkable, what we'd achieved. And you can argue for a long time, and people do, about whether the approach to the COVID pandemic was right. And of course, the inquiry is now going on now and examining what the government response was. It's clear that many things were done badly and done wrong.
But there was an optimism, nonetheless, that things would improve and that this was a sign of Britain's ability. And so we're at a time now when people are looking around them, I think, in Britain and saying, well, I trusted the government to deliver Brexit and to make, to, they said it would be a better country as a result. Is it? I trusted the government when they told me to stay at home and they told me that would protect me and things would be better afterwards, are they? So that makes it a fascinating time to be discussing, to be discussing Wynne's book because it's all about how government can make itself, the failings it's had in the past, but how it can make itself better, make itself work better and the systems that you need to put in place in order to achieve that. Excellent, elegant. Uh, short contributions from each of our speakers there. So just to open the conversation up a little bit before we invite uh, questions. To some extent, the problems that you're both looking at could be argued to stem from two things. One is politicians over-promising and under-delivering. So endlessly promising things that they cannot then deliver upon. So, you know, it's a cliche, but not a bad one. For some time now, politicians have been effectively offering the British public, uh, you know, Sweden or France's public services with America's taxes, okay? And, you know, it looks as if they may end up with actually America's public services and Sweden's taxes, but that's for another dis discussion. Uh, so that's the one thing. And the other one is that, is there not at the heart, when liberal, when you have the state at 40 or 50% of the economy, it is possible for people to vote for inconsistent things. I would say myself, politicians have to work out what I think, and even I don't know what I think on lots of issues. So you can vote for leaving the European Union and to be made better off. That's an entirely legitimate thing to ask of the state when it's this big, I would argue. So are these real things, this sort of mixture of over-promising and under-delivering on the one hand, and then the reality that you can indeed vote for other people to pay taxes for services for you, because that's the way liberal democracy works. You can vote for inconsistent things. Would either of you like to react to my... I mean, the, the point you make about it's sad the way it's twisted is we, we used to talk about having American levels of taxation and aspiring for Swedish levels of public service, yeah. aspiring to that. And I do feel that one of the problems that we've had I mean, I suppppose it's part of inevitably mentioned Boris Johnson, but it's cakeism, isn't it? The, it's cakeism. But it's actually, not you need to Boris Johnson. No, 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 absolutely. I mean, he exemplified it. But I was thinking back to his hero, you know, Winston Churchill, promising blood, sweat and tears, basically. Mm. And, and, and it is that sense as to the feeling that governments are terrified to talk about increasing direct taxation as a way of getting good public services. So I think that's part of it. But I think the other issue that I feel has been so corroded, this again goes back to, to your point about trust, is the global financial crisis is beautifully summarised as the privatisation of profits and the socialisation of losses. And there's this amazing book by Katharina Storr called The Legal Code, where she's a legal scholar in the United States, and she describes the way financial corporations have used the law of limited liability to protect the profits that they make. So, as you probably know, the law of limited liability was a really good legislative development, which if you buy a share in a company, you're only liable to the loss of the share, you don't lose your house. 
but she points out how Lehman Brothers used that to create subsidiaries in places like the state of Delaware, mm. which has very creative roots. <laughs> and so when the subsidiaries go bankrupt, there's no claim on the people at Lehman Brothers. And I think that for me, there are these two things about when we talk about why change is difficult, there's this you know, field in political politics about called class dependency, which is that, as I said, there are these political settlements and they create a stream in which policies go. And the time for radical change is when you get a crisis. And we did have that with the global financial crisis. And I do feel that the coalition government failed to take that window of opportunity to change things. So I take your point about it's always there, of course, that you know, given the promise of cakeism, we'd all vote for it. But I think there's a more fundamental point that people feel they were betrayed with the global financial crisis, and they have to say lots of people got away with it. And I think that's made things very difficult for them. I suppose this is the nature of democracy now, that people, rightly, are regularly asked to reaffirm or deny, deny their faith in the government and to give an opportunities to express their feelings about it and to kick them out or keep them. And those opportunities are obviously every five years general election and at a referendum and at local elections and, and occasionally in other elections um, too. But what that means, although it's obviously a necessary part of democracy, is that you have to constantly renew your offering. You have to be constantly dynamic and to make your, what you're offering to the electorate exciting, particularly as an incumbent government, which is what the Conservatives effectively were at the time of Brexit. That gets more and more difficult. You have to promise change while also promising more of the same because, you know, chaos with Ed Miliband. And it's a massive challenge to get that balance right between promising something new and to improve people's lives and promising that you're not going to do harm in the process of, of change. And it's something that I don't think we're particularly good at. It's also, of course, the case that individuals can use things like the Brexit referendum as a means of self-advancement. And I think we can now see quite clearly that Boris Johnson did that and backed the referendum without, uh, backed leave without really knowing what it meant, without really thinking about what it would mean for the country, but because he suspected that it would ultimately give him a chance to become Prime Minister, and in that, of course, he was absolutely right. So this kind of democratic system harnessed for unscrupulous purposes and it does come down to how much change can you reasonably promise as a government and how much can you get away with saying, well, we're getting on okay right now, we're just going to carry on doing more of the same, which is not a very saleable electoral proposition. Can I just pull back to your point? Because I think that the, I mean, there's this, um, Fiona Hill, who was um, an advisor on Russia to Donald Trump, was brought up in Bishop's Auckland and uh, she's written a book called From Coal House to White House. And uh, she left Britain, she got a doctorate at Harvard, and her father told her there's nothing for you here. But she, you know, had this unfortunate personal experience of Donald Trump. She talks about the election of Donald Trump and Brexit here. I mean, and it's, the, the analogy is often drawn as being the same thing, the election of Trump and, and voting for Brexit. And I take, my interpretation of that is that was people saying the current settlement we've got was broken. 
which the global financial crisis revealed in a shocking way. And so you've got these people who, to take your point, Tony, they are promising the moon. <laughs> and they have no compunction about the fact they're never going to deliver that. It's a promise, and I get votes. And Trump is still, you know, it's this extraordinary, I mean, his appeal to, to the core of the Republican Party is still very strong. And I, th I think it is, I don't know, do, do you think it's like grumpy old man? Do you think when we were younger, Tony, positions were more statesmanlike? You know? I was actually going to, it's a good prompt, because I was going to push back a little to both of you, really, to say that, is this all a bit glum? Because in some ways, if you look out there, you know, all the LSE's gleaming new buildings were sitting in a room, you know, it looks like the legislature of a small but very rich country, really. Not everybody, but many people in the United Kingdom have reasonable, very high life standards, you know, living standards by global standards. We, the NHS may have long waiting lists, but it remains an extraordinary achievement. Crime in Britain, strictly violent crime, is terribly low by global standards. And Johnson's gone, and the democratic machinery has sort of produced a self-writing. In fact, not only Johnson's gone, several political leaders who were in place at the last election, general election, have gone, including Jeremy Corbyn. So the self-writing mechanisms, and you know, it's hard. Some people may go to other countries because they think that Britain won't function, but large numbers of people are heading to Britain because they think it's an ideal place to live. So, is this all a bit, been a bit over pessimistic here? Do we well, again, Daniel Markovitz, it's a lovely book called The Meritocracy Trial, and he talks about division of the world into people with gloomy jobs and people with glossy jobs. We've got glossy jobs. We live, you know, in the Golden Triangle mm -hmm. of England. I live in Oxford, I've got you know, LSE, you live in Highgate, you've been walking distance here. If you go, I mean, I was brought up in Oldham, and when I went from Oldham to Oxford uh, as an undergraduate, this was on a, uh, a scholarship, Oldham had a railway line, which had a theatre, it didn't have a university. Now Oldham's lost its railway line. There's a tram that takes 50 minutes, if you're lucky, to go from Oldham to Manchester. It's lost its theatre. Oxford's got, it had one university, and I've got two universities, it's got two railway lines, it's got multiple theatres. And Sebastian Payne recently talked about, you know, if you take a tram world into Manchester, you take your life in your hands. So I think, I mean, that part of this is this issue, but <laughs> many people in this room, it works for you. But if you go to other parts, the countries I've been left behind, and this is what Fiona Hill talks about, you know, Bishop's Auckland, in the, in the states that vote for Trump. They don't think this is a great place. And the country, the people who are coming in these boats, are, I mean, you know, these are from very poor countries coming from... Yeah, but large numbers of high, high wealth are... No, that's right. Well, it, it's designed for them, of course it is. Yeah. Okay, okay, enough from this end of the room. Who would like to make a point? Yes, and if you could say broadly who you are, you don't have to say who you are, but you'd like to answer the pending question, so start there. Thank you. Um, my name's Saeed Haider, and I'm lecturer in sort of cinema, basically world cinemas um, at the University of East Anglia. Really interesting. Lots of points to pick up. I just had one in particular. I've been thinking a lot about Anderson, Benedict Anderson, and this notion of the nation as an imagined community. 
And Anderson famously talks about newspapers as a kind of key part of what brings that imagination, that imagined community together. And I wonder whether the panelists have something to say about whether there is something happening within the media culture that is exasperating sort of separation and fragmentation, so that what actually is also being lost is some notion of something collective, imagined, together, label it as you will. Okay, it's a really interesting question, actually, because we haven't talked about that, but Roz, you're the media. <laughs> I'm the media, God, that's oh. scary. Nice to hear from you, yeah, great university, as well as it LSE, obviously. Um, yes, is the simple answer. The longer answer is that, having worked in the media one form or another for most of the last 25 years, it's been a fascinating process to watch. It's the first thing to say is that things are an awful lot worse in the United States than they are here. But that doesn't mean that we should be complacent, because we mustn't be. The fact is that people have a bigger choice of media than they have ever had before. Most of it for free, not all of it, most of it for free. And in some respects, that is a wonderful thing. The amount of news and comment that you can consume is extraordinary. And the problem with that is that you have to choose which to consume. And naturally, it's easier to consume things that you believe, that you agree with. And we have sophisticated algorithms which now which drive us specifically towards content that, given what we have consumed already, it's likely that we will also enjoy this. You know, all the way from TikTok to Facebook to Twitter, it all works in that direction. The, all the direction is towards what you've already liked, give me more of it. Simultaneously, we have attacks on the BBC, particularly from the ruling party. We have many senior politicians setting up shop in, on uh, right-wing news channels and using them as a platform to denounce the BBC and the BBC's alleged bias. I speak as someone who has worked for the BBC in the past. And undermining public trust in the BBC to such an extent that every year when the Reuters digital news report comes out, you see trust in the BBC falling. And naturally, there's no way the BBC can have the reach that it used to, given the numbers of channels on which people now you know, get their news or don't choose not to get news at all because there are more exciting things to do on your mobile phone than open up your news app and more satisfying things to do. But nonetheless, this is inevitably going to have the effect of driving people apart. And unless we do all we can to prop up public sector broadcasting, it will carry on happening. And we have to do more than propping it up as well. We have to stop attacking it, stop undermining it, and give it more resources than it currently has and help it to continue to exist in this incredibly plural media environment. And no one knows quite how to do that effectively. And it's interesting, isn't it? I'm thinking Glenda Jackson, wonderful actor, who died this week. Much was made of her appearing on Morecambe and Wise, and my guess is that when she did that, 27 million people saw the same programme at the same time. And I doubt anything gets a 10 million audience, though it rarely gets a 10 million audience. It's a, it's a really interesting question. Well, I suppose the only thing, following on from what Ross says about the BBC, and people have talked about this enormous soft power in the world through the World Service. And to your point about the cuts in funding, now I mean they're going to charge for the World Service. 
how terrible that is, that that's what you have to do to survive. I mean, I mean that was just a fantastic thing that we had, and we are just crushing it. Yeah, I recommend, by the way, the world serves. It's great to listen to it. It's actually, I prefer it to Radio 4. Listen to it. Keep it alive. Controversial. <laughs> okay, as these two gentlemen here, case one, two. Actually, why don't you take them together once I get a few more questions? So, um, Firstly, thank you all for your talk. Very, very insightful. My name is Calvin, and I'm an international relations student here at the LSE. George Orwell once described the British people as rather peculiar because he deemed this place to be the one place on earth where people are almost ashamed to wave the national flag of Union Jack, oftentimes because some make a note of racism. My question is therefore, do you believe, if any, that such an erosion of national pride has an effect on the situation today? And how has it been manifested, be it in the Brexit vote, for instance, or in any other forms? Thank you. Great question. And for the long years, take two. Thanks. I, I wonder if this is all boils down to an issue of the quality of political leadership. Uh, I'm not just referring to recent leaders, but to perhaps in the medium uh, term. We have failed to rise to the challenges that we have faced. And of course, there have been considerable challenges in the last 13 years to which you've alluded. Um, but I'm always struck by the fact that politicians make excuses for their failures to rise to those challenges. I don't remember Winston Churchill in May 1940 saying, well, the whole of the European continent is under the control of Germany. Uh, we haven't got any allies. Uh, therefore, we are not going to rise to the challenge that uh, faces us. Um, without idolising Winston Churchill too much, clearly the quality of leadership that he displayed in that period made the difference. There is no quality of leadership uh, that has managed to rise to the challenge of the problems that have faced us. Indeed, they have used those problems as an excuse to fail. So, it's a very good point. I think we've heard that Lord Halifax probably had exactly the view that, you know, <laughs> Churchill didn't have, but Churchill wouldn't have said this is something we can do nothing about or it's somebody else's fault, I think is the point. Anyway, um, two really intriguing, which we do national pride first, and the sense of, because Orwell is a, a totemic writer for this kind of reason, because he did understand something, lots about the British, not only about the British, which includes this curiosity that people, arguably, are or so, well, some people on the left in particular, who's critical of the left in particular, rather embarrassed about British national well, patriotism. What about that? Do you think that's an element in this story? Yes, to a certain extent. It's very interesting you should ask because I was doing an interview uh, only a few days ago with Sundar Katwala, who's um, the author of a book called How to Be a Patriot. And he comes at it from a very left, centre left perspective. And we talked about why, particularly, some people on the left are perhaps uncomfortable with patriotism per se, uncomfortable with waving the flag and why that should be and what it's become associated with and it was a fascinating discussion also when you know when do you stop with patriotism how do you know when patriotism is actually becoming nationalism which is something we don't want yeah and how can you stop it bleeding into that and he was making quite a valid point although I had some disagreements with it about how the left should not be embarrassed about waving the flag 
because it can be a way of bringing people together. And I challenged him a bit and said, yeah, but look at the times recently when we've all been encouraged to come together. It's all monarchy, it's football. I have zero interest in football. You know, um, not much interest in monarchy either. Um, how can we actually make this, generate more of this feeling when it's so tied to particularly sport and to the monarchy? Um, and he argued that you could, and that you could take pride in more abstract ideas and more ideas about what Britain was. And the things that we valued, like the NHS, institutions that we created, the countryside, if you look at surveys about what people are most proud of in Britain, they always say, number one, NHS, number two, British countryside. Um, usually English countryside, and well, I don't know why, because all the countrysides in Britain are brilliant. So, so he argued that there was a way to unite people in a more subtle, less flag-waving way around ideas. And I suppose I, I wonder as, as well what Gwyn has to say about this and whether you think there is a function for patriotism in a vision of a better Britain. I mean, it's a very tricky question, as, as you said. I suppose I was just thinking <laughs> the day about things I would look back on with delight of my life, and they are Wales beating England at rugby <laughs> and England beating the Aussies in the Ashes. These are the <coughs> highlights of my life. But, but this is to trivialise a proposed question. I think one of the things, and it does relate to your question as well, which is there was, there's almost a sense, you know, it's, it's the Second World War and people fighting in the war, and the sense in which we were all in it together. Um, and people talk about you know, people who've been through life, like Harold Macmillan, Conservative Prime Minister, Edward Heath, um, they all have this identity, and they felt that come Margaret Thatcher's government, that in a sense was, was lost, and we moved towards, there's a, maybe a contentious view, division, acceptable, of more divisions in society. So I think that's a tricky thing. And the other question is about quality of leadership. Quality of leadership. Again, you know, it was a point you were making as we were preparing for this event, really, which is it's not just the political leaders. It's also, it seems to me, the way government worked. And you were saying the extraordinary thing was, you know, in the evidence of the COVID inquiry, what's coming through is the official machine was so preoccupied with Brexit delivering Brexit they couldn't prepare for COVID. <laughs> it's an extraordinary thing. There are so many people in government. Can they only do one thing? And, you know, in the Second World War, we're fighting the army, you know, we're organising delivery of food, we're designed to create, you know, the welfare state, full employment policy, the Labour government under phenomenal difficult circumstances, you know, Creates the National Health Service, the welfare state, system of secondary education. You were doing this so much better than me. <laughs> 1944 Education Act was passed during the Second World War, as its date suggests, a remarkable thing to be doing in parallel. And the 1944 employment might be as well. Yeah, yeah. I'm doing Do you want to say about quality of leadership? I would say that. Um, I think it's increasingly unattractive to be a politician and we have to look at why and what we can do about that and naturally the balance between scrutinising politicians properly and ensuring that they, they do their job with the full force of transparency and, and uh, freedom of the press and so on while not exposing them to 
the kind of relentless, say, hate which characterises especially social media treatment of especially female politicians at the moment and how we can protect them from that. I think politicians are generally getting better at protecting themselves from that. I'm a great admirer of the fact that Keir Starmer never looks at Twitter. Um, I think that's a, a, positive, a positive step forward. Uh, it enables you to focus on what you're actually doing rather than what people are saying about what you're doing. But we need to make it easier for you know, roots into politics, which are better than the ones we have at the moment, which seem to be studying either law or PPE at university for most people, and then getting a job in some form of politics and then moving, moving on and only really having the experience of Westminster. There have to be other ways of getting into politics and rising to the top that aren't those. As I say, yeah, we have to help people deal with the unpleasant side of the relentless scrutiny that comes with it. I heard Hillary Clinton, she was in Northern Ireland for the peace agreement, mm. and she was talking to women politicians there, and she was horrified about what they face. And she says, of course, you know, I get this stuff too, but I've got people, security all around me. These people do not have that. And I'm told when MPs meet on a Monday, they compare how many death threats they've had over the weekend, and since two of them have been assassinated. And it's truly awful where we've got to, and I do, I do think that's a very serious Hi, I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. I'm going to take a question online from Lowry Adams, who's an LSE alumna from Newport in South Wales, and it builds on points we've just been discussing. So it says, this discussion so far has focused a lot on the actions and decisions of the Westminster government, but to what extent do you believe the devolved governments of Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland have had an impact on the catastrophic failures of governance in recent years, in inverted commas. Secondly, as a result of these failures, what do each of you believe the future looks like for the United Kingdom? Do you see the Union surviving in the long term? So if I just slightly focus it back to your book for a second, which obviously, because devolution, getting moving government, actually both your books, moving government closer to people, it's quite a lot of academic research shows increases trust because people, I mean, as I always say, councillors are more trusted than MPs. Not a very high bar, you might say, but all the evidence is that they are. So is pushing power down an element, maybe down in back no, to no, 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 no. you know, local areas, okay. likely to help both with the quality of government, we have a debate about how good the Scottish government, the Welsh government are compared with the UK government in England, uh, but secondly, uh, in terms of trust, as I mean, this is a subject close to my heart, um, being actually born in Wales. Like many of my formative experiences were outside academic life, and one of them was 20 years ago when I worked for the Commission for Health Improvement, the new quality regulator established by the Blair government. Um, and this was at a time, God, they seem, you know, this is like a different era when money's being thrown at the NHS like never before. And the Blair government is committed to transform NHS performance. The deal is, we give you lots of money, you can't continue to fail. 
and all the governments in the UK, England, Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland, put vast amounts of money into the National Health Service. England decided, and I was heavily involved with this as Alan Miller was Secretary of State for Health, to have a brutal process uh, called the Star Rating Process, which I have uh, studied a lot, which named and shamed hospitals that failed to transform performance. Um, they, were, they got enormous press coverage. Blair's favourite chief executives, I remember meeting her, saying she was terrified about what the local newspapers say the weekend about her hospital going from three star to two star. And Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland just put money into their health services and did not put any sanctions for failure. England transformed its performance. It now seems incredible, but in 2001, the waiting time, target waiting time for elective operations was 18 months. By 2008, that got down to 18 weeks from GP referrals being admitted into hospital. Wales, Scotland, all that did not match that performance at all. And the problem is, and this is what Christopher Hood argues, he calls relational distance. We were talking about this in Scotland. These are Wales, Scotland, and Northern Ireland, you know, very small countries in which everybody knows everybody else. Uh, Alan Milburn could describe the 12 dirty failing hospitals as a dirty dozen in England. He's not going to meet the chief executive over dinner next week. In Wales, Scotland, all that, that would happen. So the problem we've got is that England can actually tackle fail failures through what I regard as, this is why it makes me very unpopular with public services, with sanctions for people who provide unacceptably poor performance. Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland found it very difficult to do. The problem is that to improve performance for those who you know, want to do really well, you need to do that at a much smaller scale, at a regional scale. And Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland are at a scale where you can do that for health services, for schools, etc. Um, England can't. But you need to have both a system of sanctions for unacceptable failure to operate at a big country level and a regional level to uh, create high levels of performance. So I, mean, I do believe England's, well, it's, it's a massively over-centralized state. You should have devolution. And unfortunately, the evidence we have from Wales and Scotland is just simply devolving them in the ways that we have at home will not lead to improved government. Northern Ireland doesn't even have a functioning regional government at the moment, and it hasn't done for quite some time, and that is an appalling state of affairs. And it's unfortunate in retrospect, of course, that the Good Friday Agreement put us in a position where one party, the DUP, can effectively stop any regional government from even happening in Northern Ireland. Scotland, it's interesting about Scotland because there's so much potential, I think, for devolution, but which, as we've seen increasingly in the last few months, there hasn't been enough scrutiny of what was going on in Scotland. And that's partly the fault of the Westminster media, who are obsessed with what's going on in, in London. But it's also a weakness of the, of the media in Scotland that didn't fully interrogate what was going on with the SNP and the way that Scottish politics became very, very divisive and there wasn't an effective, there hasn't been an effective opposition for all kinds of reasons. Now you asked a wider question as well about whether the union would survive. I mean, um, $20,000, $60,000 question. Maybe in 20 years or so, I can well see Northern Ireland joining the Republic of Ireland and leaving the UK. Uh, that seems to me entirely possible with the direction that's, that the country is going in. 
I think it's less likely that Scotland and Wales will, will splinter off on their own. And partly the example of Brexit has been off-putting for that because it's just shown how difficult it is to, to and of course in the case of Scotland and Wales, it would be even more difficult to break away and to make a success of a country on its own. And the immense amount of political energy that has to be devoted to working out how to do that and on what terms, uh, it's with, rather than actually doing the business of politics and improving people's lives. I mean, the Northern Ireland issue, I mean, it's been within um, the work on path dependency, this argument about political settlements have an accidental logic to them. Um, and so the Good Friday Agreement recently celebrated as this phenomenal thing, you know. And the problem was that you've got these two, you know, you've heard people talk about it, you know, the, the extreme Protestants and the extreme Catholics and the men of violence. And getting a position where these two tribes would sit in a room together to try and govern a country, as opposed to try and kill each other. That requires an unusual political settlement. And the settlement is that we recognize the tribal nature of politics. So there's the first minister from one tribe and the deputy minister from another. There is no collective cabinet responsibility. If a minister is failing in his or her job, the first minister can't sack them because you can't guarantee they'll be in the same tribe. So the trouble is, that, I mean, this is the difficulty, which is that to get government working under those particularly difficult circumstances, the accidental logic of that settlement makes it then very difficult to run the country effectively as you just So one here and then chapter. Just to say, well, I spent 12 years as a director in one of the largest London boroughs in this country. That was in the period of Mrs Thatcher and before. And the last 25 years as a diplomat representing this country. I agree with the leadership issue that you raised. But I think it's partly because we've ended up with a lot of leaders at the top, the very top, who are really only interested in promoting their party. And all the policies that we're seeing is actually in order to ensure the vote comes their way. But the real problem also is that while I was still a director in local government, a lot of the powers of local government were stripped away and given to central government, which made them far less accountable as a result, and responsive to people. And at the same time, we have not educated our local populations anywhere across this country to be able to hold people to account or to understand how policy is made, even who actually delivers a lot of government. One of the things we discovered that most people didn't know what was done by local government, central government, or the EU for that matter. So until we start educating people, at the bottom end to really understand. I mean, I've worked in dozens of countries around the world, and we are the most politically naive general population I've ever come across. You're always going to do well suggesting more education in the university, I can tell you. Uh, and chuck at the end. And we'll take one from over here as well. I'm just curious about one of the ideas you shared at the very beginning, that there's a sort of need for a new political settlement for the whole country to take us out of the sort of crisis we've been facing over the last 10, 13, 15 years. I'm wondering if the cataclysms of the financial crisis, uh, various debt crises, COVID, etc., didn't bring forth this political energy to, to bring about this new settlement, 
what will and do you see that bringing this this displaced trust i.e. trust in institutions that then went into charismatic leaders will that sort of bring back the trust in institutions that we need essentially what would engender that new political settlement that's needed it's a great question if anybody knew that i think they'd be doing well in politics as we speak it's a great question yeah over there Thank you, very interesting talk. Uh, my name is Angela, I work here at the, uh, the library. Um, what strikes me is that I find it in this country, you know, we're looking back a lot. You mentioned the war, which is a sort of obsession. You can mention the empire. It seems, you know, politicians are, the, the conversation is how, you know, how we look for inspiration in what, how did we perform during the war or something like that. But also we look at it as a nostalgia, and I think Brexit, arguably, there's something of that. So how do we look at the present, at the future? I'm not a huge fan of Tony Blair, but Tony Blair, you know, all the new labor, the creative, cool Britannia, whatever, might be window dressing, but at least it looked at you know, the present of Britain and, and how we go in the future. And I think that's really lacking at the moment. Okay, so, um, I mean, your book presumably, is, both your books are to some extent forward-looking and future-oriented, are they not? So, a good one too. So. Which would you like to go with which of those? I mean, I think, in a sense, your question about we need a better educated population, I mean, it's hard to disagree with that. How we do that, I'm not quite sure. That's, that's the point you may know. <laughs> I just set you up for easy questions to see whether that's okay in there. These two last questions are related, you know, and I, I think that the the sad thing is, as I was saying, I mean, the, the thing about pathability windows are opportunity. The global financial crisis and COVID were both windows of opportunity for, to make Britain a better place. And sadly, they've been missed. And the difficulty is windows of opportunity don't come around that often. So the question then is, which is what everyone's talking about, <laughs> is can uh, Keir Starmer, which is what Blair was phenomenally good at, of course, is lay out a compelling vision for radical change. That is the key issue. I mean, for me, the line I'd leave you with is, um, in 1981, Margaret Thatcher's soulmate, Ronald Reagan, in his inaugural address in the United States, said, you know, government's not the solution to our problems, government is the problem. And I would say that now, market failures are the problem of government, and that's what we need to fix. And we've got an over-centralised, over-marketised state. We need effective devolution. And to stop trying to make markets work, what we've proved quite incapable of making them do so. Um, yes, I um, was interested by the question about uh, why the country looks back so much. And I think it's worth pointing out that we don't just look back with nostalgia, as you were saying, although we do that a lot, with, over the Second World War in particular, but we also look back in anger increasingly. And we look back at Britain's role in slavery and Britain's responsibility for uh, appalling things that have happened as we were going into other countries and taking them over, aka empire. And so at the moment, what you have is not just the nostalgia, but also the past as a source of shame. And the question is how we manage to take both viewpoints which are both valid in different ways and take something useful from them and not use them to perpetuate 
culture wars, where we have a situation where people are saying everything Britain did was bad, and yet most things Britain did abroad were bad, and versus Britain's legacy is spotless. All this happened, and it was the kind of thing that happened at the time, so we just shouldn't worry about it anymore. And, you know, neither opinion is, is valid, and nor should we spend too much time talking about the past and the mistakes and successes of the past at the expense of the future. It's easier to do, because talking about the past is, is much easier than talking about the future, as I've discovered in writing, trying to write my book about the future. Um, but uh, it's a terrible hostage to fortune. It's a risky thing to do. But nonetheless, if you don't look forward, if you carry on looking back, um, you are unlikely to find the kind of political energy that you were asking about uh, that we need in order to make change. Because ultimately, people do want a vision of what Britain could be in 20 or 30 years' time, and not just a vision of what it was or what we might like to think it was at the end of the Second World War. OK, we need to finish in two minutes, so I have one very short question from the gentleman there, and then we'll have, to have short answers as well. Thank you for this discussion. It's great. When, when I listened to the, to the whole discussion, two things struck me. One is you painted the scene so well about the environment we're in. And you use the word once-in-a-lifetime events. And that really is the case. On the other hand, in this discussion, comes through the issue of a lack of leadership, not only at national level, but at lower levels as well. Now, when you look at the politicians, they don't want to tell the truth about what is going on because it might be bad news, and might affect votes. Do we have to have a major crisis before we can move in a new direction? Have a major crisis. Good question, right? Brief answers from the two of you on that. Do we need, you know, the on the notes? Don't you know? Yeah, I think a crisis principle. Good, we need another one. A good crisis helps. <laughs> <laughs> That's my answer. No, I don't think we do. I think we actually need crisis out. We need a period of stability. Um, we are constantly firefighting at the moment, whether it's Brexit, whether it's COVID, whether it's the war in Ukraine, and our attention goes to fixing whatever is wrong, what is immediately wrong, trying to sort out the fact that fuel prices are stratospheric, or trying to deal with the consequences of Brexit, or trying to catch up with missed education during COVID, all these things, and it's just, it's overwhelming. We do actually, and I don't suppose we'll get much of a choice about it because it's a globalized world, although it's becoming a bit less so, but it's still always going to be a globalised world, and we are going to be affected by things that happen in other countries, inevitably. It would be great to have a period of relative stability where we could get to grips with tackling the huge problems Britain has in terms of, what talked about earlier, stratospheric house prices, the reliance on inheritance in order to, to have any financial means increasingly, the crisis in the NHS, I, although I would like to think that some sort of crisis would lead to this, these being tackled, having seen two, two or three go by and really us just firefighting instead, I don't have a great confidence that we wouldn't just say, oh, well, let's fix, need to fix that, fix that, and everything else gets ignored. I'm afraid we must stop. Before I ask for a, a polite round of applause from my two colleagues here, I'm just going to plug both books, actually. I've been asked to plug Gwyn's book, 
It's published by Open Access, by Open Access with the LSE Press in October 2023. Be free to read and download via the QR link on the flyers available to the left of the stage. And your book is coming out? I'm afraid it's not till February. Not till February, <laughs> so it won't be quite ready for Christmas presents? Uh, no, sadly. No. But you can pre-order as a Christmas well, present. Other festivals are available, uh, of course. Yeah, I did. If you just follow me on Twitter, for example, that might be a way to be reminded when it comes out. Okay. <laughs> Very good. Okay, well, thank you. Thank everybody online. I'm sorry if those online didn't get their questions answered, uh, but thank you for joining us. Thank you, everybody in the room, for joining us in a very sort of uh, warm afternoon. Actually, it's very pleasant in here. It's a nice climate in here. And I hope you enjoy the rest of the festival. If you're going to do any more of it, or you've enjoyed what you've enjoyed so far. Other than that, um, hope to see you all here at other events soon. But round of applause for my two. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favourite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.